Let's get into the Word, shall we? We are, as you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. We are in 2 Kings chapter 4, and we pick it up in verse 38. So your challenge is to find 2 Kings 4.38. Now, if you have a handout, it's in your handout. All you have to do is get to 38. And I just want to say two particular terms, because I'll be using these, mostly this guy... Um, you know, it's hard unless it, the term Elishama or Elishama is Elisha, as we see it here. Elijah, we call Eliyahu. And it just makes it a lot easier to say those names. It doesn't sound as easy, but it's easier to distinguish them. Most of the time, because the other guy's kind of been and gone now, we have this guy, Elisha, Elishama. And we pick it up in verse 38. Is everyone there? Good. Thank you. That was very whelming. Okay, so what it says. And Elishma returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, put on the large pot. Now, we'll develop all of this, but it's clear that there must be one large pot that they call the large pot. It's a group of guys, you get it. And boil stew for the sons of the prophets. I remind you, he said this to his servant. You are the cook, buddy. Put on the large pot. Boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered, it, gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds, which to me sounds like a rock band, but what do I know? And came and sliced them into the pot of stew, but they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now what happened as they were eating the stew that they, they, not one, but they cried out and said, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So he said, well then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Ma? Shall I set this before a hundred men? And he said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Oh, friends, pray with me, would you please? God, thank you so much for this time. I pray you would redeem every second. Draw us all in, captivate us in this warm room. Lord, where it's supposed to snow in a couple days, Lord, we'll be thankful for the warmth we have right now. I just pray for more than the warmth of our skin. Warm our hearts, God, and speak fluent us tonight. May we have so much fun in your word. May we be in this place, Lord, where we just get it and we're like, wow, this means more to me than it ever has. And I pray, Lord, that you would tonight... Grab a hold of each of us that we would never be the same. 
And I pray you would ignite us to this place where we love you deeper and more meaningfully than we ever have. Not in just some emotional response, but in a conviction that lasts. And so I pray, God, right now, that you would tonight not just make contact, but interface with us in such a way that we are forever changed for our benefit, for the benefit of your kingdom, and to the glory of your name. So Jesus, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen and empower me by your Holy Spirit. Come upon me that you would do the work now. So Jesus, I love you and thank you already in advance for what you're going to do here. Do your work now, please. We commit every second of this, Lord, in width, in length, and in depth. Do your work. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. But say tonight as any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. The scripture is before you to check it and to read it carefully. We were following the lies of Elishma, Elisha, as we see here, and his servant Gehazi. It is, it, for what it's worth, we are roughly at about 849 BC, which is two years since Eliyahu rose, ascended in a chariot of fire. Think about where you were two years ago. Two years ago was 2016. Think about the changes that have happened in the last couple of years. Well, that's the amount of time we're talking between the time Eliyahu, Eliyahu has ascended and this guy who was his servant now has taken his mantle. So start there for a moment. You have a man who in essence was the master and a man who was the apprentice. The master has ascended and therefore the apprentice in essence steps up into that space. This is a great model, by the way, for ministry. Here is the, and there I'm going to just say, here's one of our greatest weaknesses as Christians. We tell everyone it's about relationship, which, by the way, it's true. But no relationship is taught from a pulpit. Doctrines, mindsets, standards, idealisms, sure, they're taught from a pulpit. But you really learn about relationships by observing. Everything that involves servanthood must be modeled and not just didactically handed over information. Don't you hate it when someone tells you to do something but you don't know what to do, how to do it? And you know they're holding you accountable to get it done? They're like, I need you to, I mean, if I were to tell you, okay, this is what I really need you to do, and I need you to set the queue in this way in 2400K, I want it kind of here, and this is what we're looking for, keep out the can. And now, for somebody who may have training in that area, they might go, yeah, that's not a problem. But for the majority of people who don't have training in that area, they're going to they're gonna blow a fuse, and for good reason. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to leave. When I come back, make sure it's done. The task may be very simple, but if you don't know what in the world, but if you'd watched me do it once, it would be easy enough for you to go, okay, I think I got it. And we tell people, you need to love one another. Now, Scripture teaches us, and we know this inherently, that from Scripture, we know that it's about being selfless. It's a committed, sacrificial, give your life to give life. That's what love is in Scripture. 
And because it's taught from the pulpit, we could probably complete a test of it. We could get the GCSE in biblical love and probably pass. But in our lifestyle, we still live a Disney love, but we intellectually know of a godly one. And the reason is we seldom see God's love lived out in front of us versus just taught. Anyone could stand up here and teach heroic standards from a pulpit. Well, to whatever degree, but to live it now, that's where the real hero is. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when we look at discipleship in Scripture, and forgive me for the side note, but we're on it. Let's get there. How many times in Scripture, and I'm not dissing a program, but how many times in Scripture do you see discipleship being, here's our six-week course, this is what we're going to hand out. And again, I'm not saying those things are bad if they give you structure, but if all you get out of that is somebody else basically doing what a guy does at a pulpit but in a, at a, around a coffee table, well, you're still getting the same thing, only in a modified form. You, I mean, when Jesus had disciples, they lived with him. Now, I'm not saying, hey, you want discipleship? Come and move in with us, unless you pay a ridiculous amount of rent. But the but we, we want to say, well, I'm, I'm discipling 15 people. I'm like, my goodness, how much time must you have? Now, I, I could say, well, look, at, I'm teaching them. I'm investing in them. I'm seeking to, you know, for them to learn. Sure, I'm gonna, on all fairness, that is a part of discipleship. It's just not the entirety of it. The same way that a father's not a father simply because he pays bills. When God set up fathers, he intended a relationship for which when we draw from that, we read the word, we're like, oh, that's really cool. Not, wow, I have to get over that now too, don't I? And Eliyahu, Eliyah, has now raised up this guy, and it's great because Jesus did the same. When he took these guys, and by the way, you were aware that he took some of the biggest doofuses, doofy, what's the plural? Uh, there were, so that we could look and go, wow, I qualify. And I look at 1 Corinthians 1, and it's like he chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the weak to shame the strong, and the base and the despised and the are not. And it's like, what part of that? And you're like, well, you might be like too cool to qualify, but you certainly aren't like too much of a loser to qualify. And, and Jesus picks people like that. And I love this. And then he's like, come follow me. The issue is not even the, I mean, an artist, it's not always the quality of the paintbrush. It's about the giftedness of the artist. And we get to be tools, not the artist. You're not the craftsman. You're not the lawyer. You, are, you get to be a tool in the hands of the master craftsman. And there's the beauty in it. And we get to watch that. And we see that with Eliyahu, Eliyahu, and this guy, Elisha. But now the master has left. This man has stepped up and he takes an apprentice. But the apprentice he takes is a guy named Gahatsi. Now Gahatsi, what we learn, by the way, about the guy is, is he's just not going to end well. I'm trying to be kind. Really, he is a failure of a case. There are people throughout Scripture. It's, I mean, in the end of it all, you know, you know we say in a concert or in whatever, they always remember the beginning and the end. The stuff in between is kind of fluff, but you've you got to hit them hard at the beginning and end well. When you look at particular people in Scripture that don't end well, they kind of get known for it. Classic example, King Saul. Man, this guy, God said, here's your P45, step off the throne. I've got your replacement. A man who's better than you. Who wants to hear that, guys? 
Turns out he's a teen at the moment. His voice is probably still cracking. He's probably covered in acne. And even in all of that, he's better than you are. Because it says, because he's after my own heart. What makes him better is not what he's accomplished. It's what he's after. And Saul will never step off the throne, though God's dethroned him and therefore has removed the power of of that position from him. He will die with a crown on his head, but as a poor man in his heart. And when I read Saul's life, I remember reading at the end of it all, and to me it's like, I don't know if I'm going to see this guy in heaven or not. Maybe, maybe not. And that's failure to me. I would never at any moment in my life be at a place where I go into glory and I see my Savior. And have you go, yeah, maybe, maybe he made it. David full of flaws, I have no doubt I'm going to see him. But David never switched gods. David clearly embraced his flesh. David clearly surrendered to sin, but he never switched gods. Saul, on the other hand, he's, I mean, the guy's head and shoulders taller than everyone else, and he goes into a medium to go and get information. How good can this medium be when you're, you know, everybody else is basically, you know, kind of shoulder height, and you're like minute bull. You're kind of like towering over it and they don't wreck how do you disguise it says he disguised himself you know you're in india and you're like 25 feet tall it's like what do you walk on your knees how do you disguise she doesn't even know it's him oh who's paying for this and the whole point of it is is that the guy just he just didn't get there now as a result of reading saul's life i went back because i'm like god i do not want this so then you reread Saul's life and you're like, what signs can I see throughout the whole thing? The inches he took and the consolations he made to get there. Because God, I'd rather it, you kill it when I start moving in that, before I start slowing in the right direction to go in the wrong. And I look at Gehazi and I see the same thing. We're in a time where the northern kingdom is led by Israel's, I'm sorry, by Israel's ninth king, it's Ahab's second son, Yehoram. His big brother fell through a lattice. Do you remember that? And sought Baalzebub as a result of it? Which, by the way, becomes, in essence, the whole emblem of his life. He was leaning on something flimsy, and it wasn't there to support him, and as a result of it, it killed him. And that's what happens when you lean on anything other than the Lord. That's what you're going to find. Which, by the way, dare I say, well, I'm not leaning on an idol or whatever. Well, let me just make it even more personal. When it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean upon your understanding. Ooh, that's harder. That's a lattice that we all lean on if we're not careful. Let's be honest. There are times you're not going to understand. But you, and if you can't understand, do you really want to lean there? And this guy's life is typified by this moment. where he was, His whole life was about leaning on that which couldn't support him, and then it killed him. I see that with guys that are addicts all the time. They're leaning on that one thing, and there's a time where we work with a bunch of models and you watch them lean on their looks and you know that's dangerous territory because it takes very little. You watch somebody get a pimple and they're suicidal. It's amazing what happens. And those kind of things happen when you're bullying, make the things you try to do to make yourself free. And 
the reason I say that is, is that God is showing us these amazing archetypes. Well, here is one that should, to be honest, smacks me in the face. And I pray it does you too for the same reason. And that is that Israel is evil. Now I'm talking about the 10 northern tribes. There's been a civil war. The south is Judah. The north is Israel. And in that north, led by this guy now, King Yehoram, this is Achatia's younger brother. This guy has gotten into allegiance with the southern king who was a decent, godly king named Jehoshaphat. Now, please hear me. Everybody talks about unity. We all need unity. Let's all join hands and sing the Coca-Cola song. Let's all be friends. Can't we all just get along? The problem is there are some things you do not want to link arms with. Cancer. HIV. Not just the flu. Who wants to link arms with that? Yay, we're in union with everything. There are things that are dangerous and you really don't want to be there to catch it. And what we're going to find is in this text, that's actually what God's showing us in the middle of a historical event. Here's the simplest of it. The evil of this northern king has now been inserted into the godly Jehoshaphat through political allegiance. It started with, it was acquiescence, which means you do nothing, which then it provides allowance. You allow in the wrong thing, and then you wind up in allegiance with the wrong thing. He has no idea what's to come. This guy, Jehoram, in the north, he's gonna, his sister marries Jehoshaphat's son, and boy, do they produce a, a really nasty product, a gal named Atalia, who's basically psycho, crazy grandma that kills her whole family. That's a spoiler alert. It, the product is a, of a very unhealthy union. But then I look at Kahatsi, and I realize he shows up at a rich woman's house, and we already know he's not a man of, of prayer. We have no recorded prayer of this man at all. He's a man of the stick, for those of you who were here last week. You know, there was a woman whose, whose son died, and, he, and Elijah goes, Eliyahu, I'm sorry, Elisha, goes and says, hey, take my stick, go ahead and lay it on there. And it says there was no voice, no sound, no hearing. Well, the stick's not going to talk. This guy throws his stick and doesn't even pray. And of course, nothing happens. It's suspicious that the miracle of him being raised, the boy being raised, doesn't happen until God sees actually out of the room. Now, here's our first of two accounts. Elisha returned to consecration to, to Gilgal. Now, argument over whether this is the Gilgal, that's near Jericho, or whether it's another Gilgal, God actually doesn't make it clear, and that's important because Gilgal was the place of consecration. We get that all the way back in Joshua 5 when the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan. This was the place where that generation was circumcised, which seems like a very strange thing before battle. While, while we're at it, let's predispose every man to being in a very unwelcome state to any form of battle whatsoever, hand-to-hand combat. But can I just say this? Whenever whatever battle you're going to face is, if your heart's not right, it doesn't matter how strong you are. And the whole idea of that was, re, in essence, reconfirming your commitment to the living God. That is fundamental, friends. Do you know, twice more in Scripture, circumcision refers to the heart than it does any other part of the body. It's that the tenderest part of you that is now cut open and exposed to feel the greatest pleasure and pain. And maybe you know that there is a battle coming or maybe you're in the midst of it. 
and you're facing uncertainty or worse yet, you're facing certain opposition. And you know there's a battle to be fought here. And you know you're going to need all the help you can get. Can I just say, shutting your heart down to God at this moment, and you know we can do that. Just be honest. It's going to be a rough day, so you don't read and pray like you want to because you're going to go and, and get everything else in order. So you're ready to kind of go into the fight. And the odd thing is, is you're completely unprepared even though all your ducks are in a row. And this is the place he goes to. And what he tells us is there was a famine in the land. Now, do you know there are 13 famines recorded in Scripture? David experienced a famine, by the way, in 2 Samuel chapter 21. A famine, by the way, and that was roughly 150 years ago from this point. It's important to note when there's a famine, it is supposed to be a telltale sign that something needs to change. God had promised all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, he says that if you are willing to obey my commands, I will bless you in the field, I'll bless you in the city, I'll bless your kneading bowl, I'll bless, basically, no matter what you do, you lie up, you, you, you lie down, you get up, you come, you go, I'm going to bless you wherever you go. I just ask you to follow me and, and obey me. He goes, but if you don't, the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven and shall come down on you until you're destroyed. God says, if you obey, I, look at, I want to bless you, but what I don't want to bless is your rebellion. Because I don't want, you don't even realize you are teaching by example, regardless of what you're saying, and what, if you are in a place where you're kind of going, well, I'll just do this and get away with it, and there's always forgiveness, you are teaching people that. God says, man, if you want to do that, my anger would be aroused against you, and it will shut up the heavens, and there will be no rain, and the land will, read, will yield no produce. Deuteronomy 11:17. And the point is, God really does want to bless you, and he just really wants your arms free to take what he wants to give you. And if you want to use him to fight him, why in the world would he want you there? Now, can I say this? And I'd love to say dangerous things, so here's one of them. God wants you miserable when you're running from him. And he does not want you in a comfortable state there. Because why would he want you running from him when he created you to be with him? So they're in this place and there's a famine. That clearly tells me something. Something's not right. Something needs to change. Maybe you get that at times in your life and it's like, okay, well, maybe it's not a literal famine or maybe it is in your life. But what's interesting is God uses it in regards to his word. In Deuteronomy 32, he says, listen to this, verse 2, let my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, as showers on the grass. As a matter of fact, or sorry, about 50 years later from this event, Amos will say, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a he of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And it will tell us that those people are swearing by the sin of Samaria, the very place here that is the capital of Israel. Do you have this time in your life where it's just dry? And you're like, I don't get it. I'm trying to do stuff. Can I ask this for you to ask of yourself? Is there a union that needs to stop? Something I'm attached to that I know it's not where it needs to be.
now. We're starving. And Eliyahu has a miracle in mind. I'm sorry, Elisha has a miracle in mind. And it says, now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. So there's Elisha, and he's sitting with the sons of the prophets. It's like a Bible college is kind of the idea. And he says to, notice it doesn't say a servant, but it says his servant. That's a specific individual. Does that make sense? Now, it doesn't say one of his servants. It's clear as Elisha has a specific servant. What's his name? Gehazi. So he tells this guy, put on the large pot and boil stew, stew for the sons of the prophets. Now, don't miss this. This word pot, the word sir for what it's worth, it's important to note, it's in essence kind of a pot that's it's, it's obviously a very large pot, kind of like a cauldron would be the idea. And this is kind of like what guys do. Now, I don't know if we have this here, but in America we used to have a drink they called suicide drink, which is really kind of dumb because it's just a bunch of fizzy drinks. You know, like they have those fountain drinks and it's like Coke, Diet Coke, some kind of orange thing, Tango Fanta, whatever. And then there's something usually lemon-limey, that's like a Sprite or something or whatever. And then there's like something that's like, why did, how did that make it in there? And it's like a suicide drink was basically just kind of, you just kind of went and did this with each of them a little bit. And then you're like, try this. Now, we used to have these men's conferences often. And we used to stop at, you know, at every petrol station in America. Well, at least all that I remember. It's like, there's like 6,000 kilometers of drinks. Have you, ever, have you ever seen these or ever been to one of these? It's like, it's overwhelming. And so we had this mission, this is just a guy thing, that find the most disgusting drink you possibly can. And then let's get it. We found one called Clamato, clam juice. Yeah, see, it sounds awesome, right? And you know what happens is, you know, you stop there, and of course, then you're going to go to the next place, and, and you open it up, and the first person takes a drink. Inevitably, that's probably me. And then I'm like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever tasted. Try it. And you know everyone's going to, they're going to, the next person next to you is like, you're right, this really is awful. Who's next? And it's like, there's, it's like everyone's like, yeah, now let me ask you, some of you in this room, guys, would you do it? I just, you know, there's just something in us. And the reason I say that is, is that it's easy to miss. This is where we naturally contextualize it with our own selves is, this is a guy going, hey, everybody, grab a bunch of stuff. We'll throw it in here. Suicide pot. And then it's going to, we're going to party with a stew in a famine. Y'all with me in this. But what's interesting in all of this, is that, and, and by the way, God's going to use this very pot, this type of pot, as, by the way, a, an object lesson in Zechariah 14, for those of you who want to look in regards to every pot in Jerusalem, and he talks about in Ezekiel 24, about cooking meat in it until all the scum's at the bottom, and then he says, let that scum burn right into the pot, and he goes, this is kind of where you're at, man. He's like, this is, you know, it's like, hey, that meat was good in the beginning, and it was an awesome thing, but you've got to the point now where you're just, you just let it, you're, you're scummed inside. Who wants God to tell him that? But look at this carefully. Verse 39. So one. Now we don't know who the one is. We don't have a name. So let's just give him a name. Let's call him Saul. Saul went out to the field. Now, we know everyone's going out there because we've got a stew. Now, by the way, did Elisha tell them they needed to get any food? He said, put a pot and boil stew. So somewhere down the line, I get the idea that Kahatsi now looks and he goes, this is what we need to do to make stew. I need you all to get stuff. Now, 
I would like to think someone in this room, I'd love it to be me, would be the person that'd say, Elisha, where's the stew we're supposed to cook? It's a, it's a legitimate question, don't you think? But there will always be at least one or several of us in the room that are like, I'll solve the problem. We don't pray because we're, we're too busy solving the problem to ask God how he wants to solve the problem. Does that make any sense? But so one went into the field. Here's my question to you. What was the guy going to get according to verse 39? You tell me. What does it say? Herbs. Okay, so give me an idea. What is an herb? Give me an example of an herb. Rosemary. That's a good one. What else? Thyme. Sage, rosemary, and thyme. Um, yeah, they're little green things that you kind of come in to put the flavor in. You're with me on that. And he found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds. Does anyone know what a gourd is? Because if you don't know, this doesn't really give you much of an image. The term in the way that it's used speaks of anything that's small and round and grows on the ground. In this context, in this umbrella, versus, no, I'm not talking about an English context, but the, is like cucumbers fit into that, courgettes fit into that, that kind of thing. Uh, watermelons, melons fit into that category. What makes it a gourd, and by the way, squash, do you know the term, right? Those things are gourds. What makes it, what qualifies it in this is it has to grow on a vine and it never leaves the ground when it grows. The moment you lift it up, because it's too heavy that if you lift up the vine, it'll fall off before it matures. Does that make sense? So it has to stay in the world or on the world. It never ever gets beyond the world. Does that make sense? No. So, Marcia, I'm sending you for herbs. Can you pick up a little coriander? Now, I know that means that Christy might not eat it, but can you get a little bit of coriander? You know, that kind of thing. And she comes back with these little round watermelons. Now, you get the idea that's not the same thing, right? Nor close. And this is where it goes. Now, it's important to note that God says it was a wild vine. Why is that important? Because God uses the vineyard to speak about Jerusalem and his people. And Isaiah 5.4, listen, it says, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I've not done it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild ones? It tells us in Isaiah 5, 7, three verses later, because the vineyard of the Lord is the house, of the hosts is the house of Israel. Huh. Now, I get this for a moment. Now, there is a thing called colocynth. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. Colocynth is also called the vine of Sodom, which also sounds like a band as far as I'm concerned. The, vi- the vine and the leaves look just like watermelon leaves. The gr- the, when it starts to grow, it looks like a little, it looks like a grape, I'm sorry, it looks like a watermelon, the shape and size of a, uh, now I have to put something in that process, uh, you know, roughly the, roughly the size of a cantaloupe. That makes sense, like a melon. It's basically that size, so it's it's about that size. I would say a softball, but that doesn't make any sense. It is. Well, let me say it this way. 
roughly a hundred years before Israel escaped Egypt, there was a papyrus written called the Ebers Papyrus. And in it, there, is, there are recipes for certain medicinal uses for plants, including this one. To cause a woman to terminate her pregnancy to the second or third trimester, you take this fruit along with a couple other things. Dates, by the way, is one of them in some acacia, fruit from the acacia. And you mix it with honey and plant fiber and you apply it topically and they are convinced it would kill the baby. Now, Gahatsi's there with the pot. So I picture him with this big spoon. You can picture him however you want. I picture him with this big spoon, just stirring and saying, whatever you want, go get it and bring it in. And then that tells me something. Hear me, because this could be your life. Gahatsi is not only not a man of prayer, he's not a man of discretion. There are areas, medicine and food, you do not want people to have no discretion. It's like, oh, you know, we ran out of flour, but I found some powdered bleach. I mean, it's the same color. You know, and, you know, it's like, and I found some powdered soap. I figured that would, now, hey, it may not taste that great, but it's, I still made bread out of it. But the cool part is whatever we don't have, we can use it to wash up the dishes. I mean, you, you get this idea that, and, and, and it's like, that sounds insane, right? That sounds insane. But what if God showed us that in our lives? What if the pot was your life? What do you let in? Are you like, come on, I'm cool with everybody. Are you really? And their influences. Are you in this place where you're like, you know what, is, it's all going to work out. And let's face it, for some of us, that's always been our motto, isn't it? It's like, you know, in the end of it all, if it breaks, it'll heal. Just jump. And so you're cliff diving. And inevitably, you, you probably know the secret of cliff diving is never look over before you jump because you'll, there's that part of you that goes, is this really a good idea? Really starts to speak up. So you have to be the person that just jumps. But when you have a couple of these events, well, then you kind of feel like it's all going to work out. Case in point. I'll do this quickly so we can finish this. In Northern California, there is snow. You're probably aware that California is two and a half times the, in, the size of the entire un, United Kingdom. And in the north, there's snow, especially in the winter. And there's a place called Lake Lucerne, hilly, and covers in a couple meters of snow in the winter. And we have men's retreats at this thing. A bunch of guys get together, and we just basically feel like lumberjacks freezing to death in an unheated, I'm not bitter. But, and then, you know, and you're like talking, you hear guys talk about things, and then we go out and do really dumb things. And so part of it is we go up on hills, at least the first day, I'm like, you guys, this is snow. You know how to slide down snow, right? And so we're grabbing everything that we think is slippery and slidey. You know, that's like this big dish and this inner tube that, I don't know, what kind of vehicle something like this could be in, but basically it was taller than I was with an inner tube spout, you know, the thing that you blow it up that was roughly about, about a, you know, about a foot long, basically about a, th a third of a meter. And, and we go up and we get to the top of this hill. We have no idea what's at the bottom. 
And I'm like, who wants to go first? And of course, all of the guys kind of do this look away thing. You know that, right? We're not getting eye contact. Well, it's whatever. I'm going. So I grab the first thing, which happens to be the inner tube of plenty. And I'm going to go down this hill. Now, because I am who I am, which is dumb, I went head first, which of course is the case. But I figured I'm cool because I've got that inner tube spout to hold on to. I'm going to handle, man. Right? So I go down. And I'm. Right? Well, there comes to this point, because you don't see it in snow. Snow kind of tends to make everything look the same as far as value. This point where you hit this little, like, cliff. Do you ever have moments in your life where you feel like it's going in slow motion? This was one of those moments. So, because when you leave that, you're on something really bouncy, which means that you and the inner tube have decided to divorce due to gravity. So it's at this moment I'm going, no, and I'm trying with all of my appendages to get some form of contact with my saving tube. And I'm like, no, and then, baboosh, and I hit this thing, and what happens is I actually land on it, and I'm like, yeah, well, guess what? I actually didn't grab a hold of anything, so it launched me, and as it launched me, it launched me head first into the frozen Lake Lucerne. You know what's at the bottom? A frozen pond. Now, there's something I learned at that moment. When ponds freeze, big lakes freeze, there is a layer of air between the water and the ice. Did you know that? At least there was in this one. And you know how I know it? Because that's where my mouth was. My chin was under the ice, breathing the air. My head, up to my eyebrows, was in the water. And all you can hear is... Everyone is fumbling down the hill. Just running down the hill because they think I'm dead. Because I'm literally dangling with my feet up in the air. And once the snow clears, thank you, inner tube, which hits me on the way down, what happens is it's clear I'm under the, the pond. And they come... And I tell you, getting in the pond head first, what's not half as painful is a bunch of guys trying to pull you out of the pond. Because like, you're trying to line your chin. There's just no way to do that. And they pull you out of this thing. Guys are crying. They think, oh, we've killed, like, and that was, the pastor was my big brother. We've killed the pastor's little brother. You know, and I come flying out, and you know what I say? You know the first thing you say after that? Let's do that again. It'll all work out. And after a couple of those experiences, and cliff diving was one of them where, anyways, we, you know, that's a story for another. You know that you're like, I don't think I'm invincible, but I kind of am. And then you treat life that way. Oh, I could let that person in my life. They're not going to ruin it. You know, I could let a little bit of that. How does an addiction happen? You let a little bit of it in. You just let it into the pot. What you don't realize is things grow in the pot. But I noticed this with this guy. He didn't just throw in bloop, 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 these, these things that look like little round watermelons. Notice it tells us that he sliced them into the pot of stew. So it tells me there's a stew already happening by this point. Now, if you're sent to gather herbs, it sounds to me like you've got a stew happening and you just need to put the finishing touches. Oh, no. Why do you cut them into little pieces? Because then you don't notice them. 
So this deadly thing, and I remind you, this is prophets we're talking about. You'd think if anyone would have a little bit of divine information, like don't touch that. But let's just go beyond that. If you were just a normal human being with an ability to discern and everybody's starving to death, and oh, look, nobody touched this. Is there a uh uh-oh in your spirit when you see that? One of the things I learned from the Indian part of my family, American Indian part of my family is, is that if you are stranded in some place where there are trees, eat what the birds eat. If the birds don't go near it to eat it, you probably shouldn't either. So you look and you're like, everyone's starving to death. Oh, look at this is untouched. I'll eat that. Let's just bring it in and share it with the class. And so he cuts it. And this is what the devil does to you. Is it isn't like he goes, check this out. Boosh. He kind of gives you, have a little sliver, have a little sliver of this addiction. Come on, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And then the next thing you know, you're like, there's death in the pot. What do I do? We're going to die. Well, hear me on this, and let's bring this around. This pot could be an image of your life, but it is a perfect example of Israel's state right now in this situation. I'm not talking about Israel today. I'm talking about Israel in Second Kings 4. They're just, Judah specifically, is just letting in these unions that are destroying and, it's, and God allows us to see this because it's what happens to every one of us if we're not careful. You're like, but they're my friend. I'm like, if you were really their friend, would you seek to see them change or would you let them really change you? It's amazing what we call friends. Look at you can be friendly to them, but hey, friends have the privilege of influence in your life. Choose that wisely. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good practices or morals. So, here's the crazy part about it. Elisha has not freaked out by this at all. You're like, this is death now. Hear me on this. What if this is you right now? You're like, you know what? If I'm going to be honest, what do you do? I'm a pot full of deadly stuff. You know what's interesting? Is that God doesn't heal this by taking something away. He could have. Elisha could have put a spoon into it, like the axe head, let all the nasty parts float to the top, scoop them all out and say, we're good. But he adds instead. Did you notice that? If you're in a relationship and you know it's not a healthy relationship and it's a bad thing, and you tell someone, you need to get out of that, there are very few people in this life in the 30 years of ministry that I've been involved in, and they are all, and I mean this sincerely, they are heroes to us. That when you tell them, you actually know this is wrong, you need to cut this, and they do. You wish everyone would take that advice. But you don't just go, well, bail on this. It's like, look it. You need to put more Jesus in this. If you could put more Jesus in this, It'll be a lot easier to list this. Interesting. What does he throw into the mix to, to heal it? Flour. But do you know there's more than one word for flour? There's a general term for flour, and that is not the term that is used here for words. The usual word for the words word collect. The word that's here is the word kamach. It's specifically an extremely finely ground flour. And that's really important. 
It is the flower, by the way, that is used in the grain offering of Leviticus 2.1 when we read it as fine flour. Fine flour, not like, ooh, that flour is fine. Fine like it's finely ground. Huh. It is the flour that is used in Numbers 5.15 in a jealousy offering. I find that interesting. And it is also the flour that the widow of Zerophath had in 1 Kings 17 with Elish's boss. Hmm. Does anyone think of any time that flour was used in the New Testament? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. You know what's interesting? Why do you sift wheat? Because it clumps up. You're trying to break it free from the moisture so it can be the flour it's supposed to be. Does that make sense? And what do you realize? In Simon's case, he had pride that was clumping him together. And Satan needed to sift him. Jesus was going to restore him. But can you imagine Jesus going, you're really no good to me right now? Because you're a pot's full of death. What Judah needed was some sifting. They needed some genuine and honest honest grinding and they needed the Lord to be there more than he is and when the Lord fills those holes you will actually not let stupid things fill them the book of Proverbs tells us that to this starving soul famished soul even the bitterest thing is sweet but the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb we had a dinner today. I ate way too much. And I had plans already to pick up something that was desserty on the way back. But by the time I was done, that did not sound good at all. But when you're really hungry, it's amazing what you'll eat. Your socks start look pretty good after a while. And you know you're really hungry when someone else's socks start looking really good. When a soul is famished, it is amazing what they'll try to feast on and relationships are what the soul feasts on. And there's only one who can satisfy that soul and that's the living God. And if you've tried to replace that spot with anything else, you are famishing your soul. And when you are hungry, it's amazing what smells good. Is there death in your pot? Can I say... You need to fill that spot with Jesus. And if you don't fill that spot with Jesus, there'll be death in the pot because you'll fill it with something else that is not equipped to do so. And by the way, like this, if it really, by the way, is this color synth, it is an imposter. Sliced up and little bit by little bit until the next thing you know, the entire thing is in you. Does anyone want that? I don't. And what would happen if you're like, Jesus, I, you know, we, we used to sing songs like, God, I need more love from you and I need more power from you. And in the end of it, all, God's like, look, it, it isn't that you need more love from me or more. I need more of you. That's the problem. I'm infinite and I don't give my spirit a measure. I'm not withholding God saying, I'm not withholding. You're just too full to take me. And you're full of nonsense. You know, it's an hour before a good meal and you've decided to, to snack on dumb things. 
So when the good meal comes, you're like, oh, I can't really eat it. What if we do that in life? Well, we haven't even gotten to the last story, but instead, I think it's just best we pray. Because look at what God's doing in our hearts right now. There's a part of, let's be honest, there's a part of us that goes, you know, if I really gave this an honest thought, I think I'd see a really, I'd see a dangerous parallel. Gehazi, by the way, I remind you, is going to be a great failure. And he's not a man who's careful about what goes into it. Here's the danger. What goes into this pot doesn't just affect Gehazi. It affects everybody. And what goes into you is going to affect everyone. Do you really want that? But here's the good news. My God is offering you tonight to fill that spot. And when he does, it is amazing how much life comes back. And you're like, oh my goodness. It's like you wake up and you're like, I, I love you again like I'm supposed to. Wow. This is what I remember. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, that's where it starts. At the cross. When God took your filth and mine and paid for it there. Dying on the cross is the scripture promised he would. Being buried and raising again on the third day, just like scripture promised. And then revealing himself in that resurrected state and saying, no, that's what I want. I want a new life with you. But that old life has to die. Maybe, to be honest, what's in the pot is just a whole lot of old you. But you realize that space is filling space Jesus wants to fill. Which means it's a terrible substitute. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, I want to give you the chance to say yes. And if you have accepted the gift, I'd like to give you the chance today to ask a dangerous thing, and I'm going to. And that is, God, will you recircumcise my heart? Will you cut it open? So that the tender part of me, the sensitive part of me, is within your touch. And let me fall in love with you like I should. Like I know I would. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this text. And I want to thank you for this crazy example that we could easily say 2,800 plus years ago, this is what we're looking at, is somebody who, in reality, this is a historical event, just indiscriminately threw everything in the pot and hoped it would work out to become a beautiful stew. And I confess to you, that's much of my life. Just open to whatever, letting it all, and then somehow feeling like I could heroically at the last moment, like Samson, somehow break free from whatever the binds are and just, it's going to be another day at the work. But I confess to you, doing that is now letting in things that are so deleterious and destructive and, and even if it doesn't make me do horrible stuff, it often just stops me from wanting to do the good stuff with the same passion that I should. And Lord, I knew there would be a time where just not doing the bad stuff wasn't enough. Because I know it isn't like you stop at zero. But you move us to where you want to use us to be a blessing. And God, I confess to you, there are times where I could be infinitely more of a blessing, but I just get so caught up in throwing stupid things in my pot. 
And Jesus, you, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep and raised from the dead, Lord, you show us the necessity of death and resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that's what we would see, that finely ground truth, Lord, that you would, that you would take that place over and let that which should die, die. And that in letting it die, you would resurrect that, Lord, which would be life. Because I don't want any death in this pot. So, Lord, I pray for every person here today that we would respond accordingly. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, just pray this prayer with me right now. Come on, bite the bullet. Jesus, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And I stand guilty before you on my own merit. But, Father in heaven, you love me so much, you sent Jesus to pay that price for me. And when he died on the cross, all my guilt was paid there. And when he was buried, it was buried with him. And when he rose again, he rose without it and offers me a new life. And I say yes. Not just confessing Jesus as my ransom, my payment, and my Savior, but also as my Lord, the architect of my reinvention. So, let all that die and resurrect something so much better. So I hand my life to you now, in Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I pray you say, Amen. And Lord, I pray for every person who has confessed you. We're praying a dangerous prayer here. That you would cut open our hearts, that you would circumcise our hearts, God. We've walled them up, sometimes out of safety, because we know there are people that that want to abuse it. But sometimes what we've done is we've made it a prison cell and not even let you in. And I don't want that. We don't want hard hearts. We want tender hearts that are fresh and open to you. So God, I pray tonight for every one of us, would you please, Lord, I give you permission and ask, recircumcise my heart. And handle the overflow of whatever emotion that would be. Whatever that would be like. But Lord, do it in a way so that I would fall in love with you the way I should. And I thank you for your faithfulness to do this. Drive out all the death in the pot by adding you to the mix. Because what's clear, Lord, is death just doesn't stay dead around you. So fix that, I pray. As we hand ourselves to you, Lord, send us out of here with joy and expectation, Lord, for what it is you're doing even now in our hearts. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being the God of life, for being the resurrection and the life, for being the way, the truth and life, for being the bread of life. So, Lord, we pray, live in us. Jesus, in your name. Amen.